Wow, I could sing that song all one more time right now. Love it. Love the message. Well, I want to take a moment and welcome you as well to our gathering here at Calvary Baptist Church. Uh, my name is Jim Newcomer. I have the joy of serving as a pastor here. And, and if you're our guest today, I sure would like to meet you as well. You got, if you're our guest today, you have a lot of people who want to meet you now, right? And I'll be in the lobby at the end of the service or at the conclusion. And please stop by and shake my hand so I can greet you if this is your first time here. By the way, we have a gift for you if this is your first visit with us. And that gift is waiting for you after the service at the information center, you just go out these back doors, turn right, keep walking straight, and you'll, you'll find the information center, and we have a gift for you to remind you that you're always welcome to come visit and worship with us here at Calvary Baptist Church. I, uh, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1, and if you're, um, if you're here with, and you don't have a copy of Scripture, that's fine. We have extra copies underneath the chair in front of you. Uh, and it's on page 1,211. That's where you'll find 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I do want to welcome um, Yara and Victor back. Where are you? Wave to me. Right, right here, right there. And you have little Hector with you this morning, and we welcome you back. It's been wonderful to pray for you all as you had this baby, Yara. And, and, and Victor, we prayed for you guys, and it was good to minister to you as well. So Lord bless you. Thank you for being back to worship with us this morning. And if you ever want to see the best hair on a, on a baby boy, you got to see Hector after the service. So he'll be shaking your hand in the lobby, too, and then I'll be waiting in line, all right? And also, one more announcement. My wife is on grandmother duty in Savannah, Georgia, this morning. And so I, what does she do when she leaves town? She gives me an announcement to make to you. Uh, ladies, uh, all those ladies who signed up for the Bible studies, the Tuesday Bible studies that are starting up, um, on March 21st, or, yeah, March 21st, uh, the morning one goes at ten, from 10.30 till noon, the evening from 7 to 8.30. If you've signed up, you know what I'm talking about. Well, your Bible study books have arrived. And ladies, if you've signed up for one of these two Bible studies, please, after the service, after you shake Hector's hand and my hand, um, go to the table in the lobby uh, for the ladies' ministries. And they'll have your study book on the book on Deuteronomy there for you to pick up. And not just that, you already have an assignment. You need to come to your first week having completed week one in your new book that you're going to pick up this morning. I like that. This is getting real, okay? And uh, if, you're, if you're for some reason on video or, or you're here with us this morning and you're not able to pick up your book, please just see after today, see Kathy or Carolyn White. They'll make sure that you get your book. Your Bibles are open to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I just want to start with a question this morning. I'll wait for you just for a moment to clear your hearts from anything that's causing you to be anxious, clear your minds of anything that's distracting you, because I need you to really plug into this question when I ask you. You ready for the question? Here's the question. Who are you? Who are you? Now, you might have some answers rolling around in your mind. Perhaps you would answer my question this morning with this. Yeah, I'm a patient with chronic pain. That's who I am. That's what's on my mind every single day. Others of you may have answered the question this way. Yeah, I'm a student, and I'm under unbearable pressures. Not just academic pressures, I'm under 
cultural pressures on my campus, pressures to compromise my faith in Christ. Others of you may answer the question, who are you, with these words. You may say, yeah, I'm a wife with an impatient husband. And sometimes if the truth were told, I'm frightened. Others may answer that question, who are you, with these words, well, I'm a husband with a distant wife. Oh, we might share the same home and the same room, but it's icy. That's who I am. That's what occupies my thoughts every day. Some of you may hear that question, who are you, and answer with these words, well, yeah, I'm an employee, just marking my time, pressing through the years, pressing through the decades, waiting for the big retirement. That's what's on my mind every day. Who are you? Some of you might answer with these words. Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm a success. But I still still just want a little bit more. And that's what occupies my thoughts every waking hour. Who are you? Well, some of you might say, I'm not a success. No, no. I'm a failure. And I want out. Some of you may answer with these words. Who are you? Yeah, well, I'm a Westerner, and I'm watching morality disintegrate all around me. Others might answer, well, you want to know who I am? I'm a patriot. Just read my t-shirts. And my bumper stickers. And I'm watching America unravel. That's my identity. I could ask this word or this question, who are you? And you might answer quietly with these words. Yeah, I'm, I'm a single parent just facing life alone one day at a time. Those are just a couple of common answers. I might get to my question, who are you? But if you answered in your heart just now with one of those, one of those rang too true for you, or maybe you answered that question with a a, a similar answer, then I have some loving pastoral news for you. If you answered like these suggestions, you have forgotten who you are. You say, well, those things are true. Those statements are true. I'm not saying they're not true in your life. But if this is what your answer is to the question, who are you, then you have forgotten who you are. That's why I'm so grateful that you and I are pulling up, finally, to the epistle of 1 Peter. We've spent three or four months, even, uh, in our morning times during during, uh, the series Studying the life of Peter, we caught him right at the beginning in that study. And just how he was an ambitious, impulsive leader. I mean, if everyone else is going to stand around, Peter's going to take care of things. If everyone else around here is going to be quiet, Peter will answer the question or ask the question. And God took Peter. And under the watch of our Lord's three-year earthly ministry, just molded this man and pressed him and tested him and moved him through the fire 
And out came a true disciple of Jesus. Not a perfect one, but a true one. Even after our Lord's ascension, as we saw in the series, the old Peter would show up every once in a while. A legalistic man, a rigid man, a man who struggled with the fear of man. I mean, we saw Peter, as the one artist said, warts and all. But for some reason, we were still drawn to him. Maybe it's because as we saw him and his struggles, we found our own hearts saying, oh, so I'm not alone. So there was at least one other, just like me. And his name was Peter. And then we saw him in our last and final biographic study disappear into a 15-year silence. But we saw last week that he was anything but inactive. He was anything but retired during those 15 years. Because it's this letter, chapter 1, verse 1, that breaks the New Testament silence from Peter. There's a lot going on in the background of the culture of this time when Peter pens this letter. He's penning this letter, most likely around 64 A.D. We're not quite sure. There's speculation either way, but many of you know from history that Nero, of all people, orchestrated a huge fire to sweep through Rome to create more space more real estate, if you will, for Nero's building projects, even his own palace. And that proved to be a risky political move for him and more than he had bargained for and with the, the rightful backlash from the Roman uh, citizens. Nero decided to spin off the blame for this fire and blame the Christians. This happened around the same time, the same general time as when Peter would write his first epistle. We, we don't know exactly if he wrote before that fire or after, but we, we do know this. That in a very real sense, as fire was, was building there in, in Rome, in a very real sense, there was a cultural heat that was also turning up at the same time against Christians. As a matter of fact, it wasn't just in Rome, but there was a distaste for the sect of Jesus the Nazarene, as it was called, or the way, claiming that there was only one God, claiming that a man, Jesus, from Nazareth had risen from the dead, and that all allegiance is due him, that he is some sort of Lord and King that demands faith. And repentance. And that put in a stench into that culture. That when Nero spun his lie, either before or after the writing of this epistle, there was already enough tinder and gasoline poured on it for this flame to spread. It's at this time that there is persecution, not just in Rome, but it has spread throughout the Roman Empire, even into modern-day northern Turkey. And we're going to see here in chapter 1, verse 2, or chapter 1, verse 1, a list of cities that are in what we would call northern Turkey today. These are the recipients, and the way they're listed is a common postal route that would have been taken with Peter's letter. 
Peter is coming out of his silence in the New Testament, so to speak, to address this issue of a growing hostility to Christians. A growing hostility to those who believe the gospel of Christ. As a matter of fact, this wave of persecution that Peter is addressing, listen, is the very wave of persecution that will kill Peter. He's watching it roll in. He's going to be addressing it in this epistle, and it will eventually cost him his life, this wave. But Peter's concern is not inward. It's not towards himself. As a matter of fact, his concern is outward. It should have been inward on a human level because our Lord even told him at the end of the Gospel of John, Peter, at the end, you're not going to finish in a comfortable way. Your hands are going to be bound and you're going to be led where you don't want to go. But Peter's concern is outward for believers, listen, who are going to suffer severely. Yeah, Peter isn't coming out of retirement with these first two verses of chapter 1. He is preparing believers for war. In 1 Peter, he's preparing them to be on the defense, if you will. just to, They're going to be attacked with this persecution. How will they respond? In 2 Peter, he's going to equip them to go to war by being on the offense. How do you respond to false doctrine? I mean, if you want to summarize the themes of 1 and 2 Peter, in 1 Peter, when it comes to persecution... Anchor yourself. In 2 Peter, when it comes to error, arm yourself. But as we pull here into 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter is going to impress here and throughout this whole epistle this propositional statement. Are you ready for it? Remember who you are. Never forget who you are, no matter what you're facing. No matter how good the times are, no matter how dark the times are, no matter what's going on around you, no matter where you are, never forget who you are. And he's going to do that with this launch of the first two verses of chapter 1. He's going to give them three statements that sum you up. No matter what you're facing, the three statements are as follows. Number one, he says, your journey is temporary. Your journey is temporary. My wife is in Georgia. They're having spring there. I sent her another headline from the Detroit News this morning uh, about the weather report here. We like to be together in snow, when there's snow activity, and we've been apart two of the last three times. But you know what? She's on a trip to Savannah, Georgia, and she's, she'll come home on Wednesday in time for our parenting class here at the church. She's in Savannah, but she's not staying there. As much fun as she's having, and all the pictures I've already gotten yesterday and today of her with my grandson and my daughter... My son-in-law's on a missions trip. That's why my wife's here. I mean, I'm glad she's enjoying herself, and I want her to enjoy every minute because it's going to end. 
No vacation is for good and permanent. That's kind of where Peter's going to start this epistle. He wants you as a believer. He wants his readers who are in a, a fresh crest of a wave of persecution. He wants them to know that their journey is temporary. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We know that story from our series. He was not only chosen to be a disciple, he was chosen to be one of the twelve. And on top of that, he took leadership on the day of Pentecost and was used. Uh, he used the, kings, the, the keys of the kingdom, if you will, to unlock the door of the gospel to the Jews on the day of Pentecost and to unlock the, the door to the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius. We've watched Peter. There's no doubt, with all his perfections, there's still no doubt that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. See, what's he saying here at the beginning? He's saying your, your journey is temporary. You've got to remember that. That's part of who you are. He says those who reside as aliens, verse 1. Now, this is an interesting word. It's uh, the word for alien. Don't think of a green man with big eyes and two antennas coming out of his head. Uh, these, this is the word for a sojourner. This is what my wife is doing in Savannah, Georgia this morning. I mean, she's there, but she's not a Georgian. She's there, but she's no longer a southerner. And she and I say amen to that. This is, a, this is the Greek word that just means to, to, to reside somewhere, to, to live alongside of someone that you really stand out from as different, not the norm of what's around you. One commentator puts it this way, this particular Greek word emphasizes both foreign nationality and temporary residence. See, what does that mean? Lori is a Michigander, that's her, that's her loyalty, that's her, her, uh, um, where she lives. She's a Michigander, that hasn't been surrendered at all when she got on the Delta flight. But she's a Michigander in Georgia for just a few days. Her being in Georgia doesn't mean she's, she has sacrificed her Michigan credentials. No, she's there, but she maintains her identity. The NIV translates this, at least the earlier edition of the NIV, as strangers. The ESV says exiles. Actually, I think the New King James gets this one, gets the, 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 the blue ribbon on this one. They, they refer to you as pilgrims. I like that. This is a concept that's not unique to Peter here in the New Testament. Paul will use this kind of language. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in where? It's in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul kind of takes this picture again in Ephesians 2.19, where he says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, talking to the, the, the Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. I find that interesting. How, if you compare Paul's use of it in Philippians 3.20 and Ephesians 2.19, it's like sometimes a Christian can, re- can remember, rightfully so, that their primary citizenship is in heaven. They're just here temporarily. But the here isn't their identity. But then, if you compare it with his use in Ephesians 2.19, sadly, there's probably some Christians that say, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a here I'm, 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 an, I'm in this life, I'm in my story, and I'm just a pilgrim when it comes to heaven. That's backwards. This imagery is so powerful. The author of Hebrews uses it. In Hebrews 13, 14, For here we do not have a lasting city, he writes, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Or the writer of Hebrews uses this language with Abraham. In Hebrews 11.10, Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. I love that. Even in the Old Testament. In that big long chapter dealing with God's word, Psalm 119, verse 19, the writer says this, I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me, God. I'm a stranger here. I'm a pilgrim. I'm just, I'm just passing through, as the song says. No matter where you are, no matter how you ans- answered that question a moment ago, understand that it is just temporary. It says here in verse 1, it says, it says, those who reside as aliens, and look at that next word. It says scattered in the New American Standard. Uh, this is the word that, that um, with the article, the definite article, is how the Jews referred to themselves as being scattered in the dispersion. In John chapter 7, verse 35, I'll just read it to you. I'll give you an example of this usage. John seven thirty-five. Jesus says in verse 34, You're going to seek me and you'll not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? And in the Jewish mind, there was a, a, a use of this word with the definite article, meaning the scattering of the Jews. And a, a loyal Jew would say that's bad. Those are compromising Jews on the frontier, front lines, if you will. But here, it doesn't have the definite article. But Peter, being such a strong Jewish filter in his mind, having such a strong Jewish filter, knew what he was doing by using this word nonetheless. But as Peter uses it, this is so encouraging to me. He's not limiting it to the Jews. He's saying, Gentiles anymore. Things are going to get so bad down here. Because of your faith, that there's going to be a dispersion of God's people. Persecution is coming. As a matter of fact, it's James, our Lord's half-brother, 
uses the same concept in James 1.1, talking to his Jewish readers, but these are Jewish Christian readers. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. He's not writing just to the Jews of the dispersion. He's writing to believing Jews who've been scattered because of persecution. It's the whole reason James is writing it. And here, Peter is doing the same with Gentiles. Did you get that? Peter is writing this, though some Jews would read it, and there, there was a healthy Jewish population up in what we would call this area of Turkey in that day, but he's writing predominantly to Gentiles. You say, Peter? The one that just got chased out of uh, Antioch uh, um, 15 years earlier for compromising the, the freeness of the gospel and living consistently in your profession of Christ um, and, uh, as far as how you live out that gospel and you not have to be circumcised and all that. I mean, he, was, he, just, he just came down on the wrong side of that with Paul. And he was backing away from the Gentiles at Antioch and hanging out with the Jewish zealots that visited from Jerusalem. That Peter is writing, he's breaking the silence by writing to Gentiles? Oh yeah. Yes, he is. In chapter 4, verse 3, here's just one of the many hints that we're going to see. Chapter 4, verse 3 of 1 Peter, for the time already is already past Sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking, parties, and abominable idolatries. He's saying, remember what life was like before Christ? You as a Gentile, remember that? That tells me that he recovered well after Antioch. Peter's saying here in these first two verses as he greets them, he's saying with what you are facing as far as persecution, what you will face, you need to to embrace the fact that your journey through this life is temporary. And this must grip you in two ways. Say, in what way? Well, first of all, if you understand that your journey is temporary and you need to know this when when the pressure's on, and the rejection happens, and the culture bears its swords at you, this will give you hope. This will give you hope. You say, well, how does it give me hope, knowing my journey's temporary? It gives you hope because you realize that time will run out. What you and I are suffering as disciples of Jesus is only temporary. The pain that we're experiencing in this life is temporary. The difficulties in our relationships where there's there's reaction against the hope of the gospel that's operative in our hearts, that's temporary. Also temporary is your pursuit of the American dream. Also temporary is you living for the portfolio. Also temporary are your patriotic bumper stickers. They're real, but they're temporary. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days, that we may present to you, Lord, a heart of wisdom. 
Or Psalm 39, verse 4, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Remembering that your journey is temporary gives you hope. Time's going to run out and your suffering will reach a conclusion. But it must also grip you a second way. It not only gives you hope, but it creates urgency. It creates urgency. You say, how does it create urgency? Because, well, time is running out. Peter's going to be all over this. He's not just saying, brace yourself and wait for the storm to pass. He's going to say in this epistle, listen, anchor yourself. We have much to do. You want to see a little spoiler here? Look at chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Look at this. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. we got much to do. And the weeks are racing by. Want another one? Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to do what? To abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. There's an urgency to your growth in holiness. Why? Because your time here, your journey is temporary. It's flying by. You want another one? Chapter 4, verse 7. He says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And then verse 9, in the same breath, he's going to say, and be hospitable to the people of God. So in a sense, knowing that your time is temporary here, it creates an urgency because it gives you hope. It gives you hope and gives you that this suffering that you're experiencing or will experience will at some point end, but it it also creates this urgency which reminds you that time is running out. In the second century, a secular observer made these comments which found their way into uh, a churchman's pen from the second century. Quote, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind by either country, speech, or customs. They reside in their respective countries, but only as aliens. They take part in everything as citizens and and put up with everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their home. And every home is a foreign land. They find themselves in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They spend their days on earth, but hold citizenship in heaven. Yeah, that's it. Our time is short, brothers and sisters, to leave a gospel footprint. To be a bright light. Peter heard a sermon on this several times during our Lord's earthly ministry. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 14, he remembers the Lord calling them to be light, 
to be salt. Even, even to stand out like a city on a hill, looking at it from the plain. There's no way to hide it. Peter was probably a teenager or early 20s when he heard that for the first time. And as he begins to say goodbye with his final two epistles, when he begins to prepare believers to suffer in the very wave of persecution that will take his own life, this language comes back to him. We must be radical now in living out our faith because time is running out. So you might be asking at this point, well, so tell me though, why do I have a different home? If Ypsilanti, if Washtenaw County, if Wayne County, if uh, I know I pay taxes here, but I, I don't really belong here. I mean, I, I live here and I love the people on the cul-de-sac, but this isn't ultimately my, my ID. I'm a citizen of heaven, not in the future, right now. And I want to know, how did I become a citizen of heaven? I'm glad you asked, because that leads to the second mark of who you are. The second mark is this, your identity is settled. It is settled. Now look at verse 1 again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now watch this. There's not, there are no verse divisions in the Greek. Who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. You say, well, I want to know, how did I become a citizen? How did I come to know God? And God puts it this way through Peter, or through Paul's pen. He says, you've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. If God didn't move towards us first, we would never move towards him. Some people um, liken evangelism as, as someone going down uh, uh, the river towards the, the waterfall and certain destruction, and, and they're, they're yelling for help, and someone hears them, and and they throw them a life-saving ring attached to a rope, attached to a boat. And they say, please grab onto that ring and save yourself before you go down the waterfall to certain death. They say, what's wrong with that illustration? Uh, it's like all wrong. First of all, you're not going down, floating down, screaming for help according to Scripture. You see, if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord yet, you're not floating. You're on the bottom of the river. You're already dead. The current is taking you where you don't realize. And you're not hollering for help. That's you and me on our best day before we come to Christ. We don't even seek God, Paul puts in Rome, or quotes in Romans chapter 3 from the Old Testament. No man seeks God. There's no princess bride theology. You're not mostly dead, but there's a, as a semi-Pelagian would say, there's an island of good in you, though, and our appeal is to that island of good. Man, your ears aren't working because you're dead. And God comes to you on the bottom of that river. 
and gives you life. And then you realize you're in the river. And he rescues you. As you realize there's nothing you, in and of yourself you can do to rescue yourself. It's not that you came to know God, period. It's comma. God came to know you. You've been known by God. I find it interesting in these words I just read in the last, latter part of verse 1 and most of verse 2, mentions every person of the Godhead. There's one God manifested in three persons, but still one God, but every member of the Godhead is here. And not only is it here, this is telling me that Peter's theology has continued just to solidify and, 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 and deepen as it should with all of us through our lives. Peter here is very Trinitarian. But he's not just giving us data dump in verse 2. He's saying, listen believers who are getting ready to be persecuted because of your faith. Do you understand that every member of the Trinity is focused on you? is facing you, is operative in your very life. He's saying, in what way? Well, a couple I put in your notes here. First of all, because of the Father, you are loved. Because of the Father, you are loved. It says at the end of verse 1 and into the front end of verse 2, it says, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The whole plan of salvation is crafted in the infinite mind, the gracious mind of God the Father. Now what do we do with this word chosen? I, I can try to soften this word for you, but the New Testament won't let me. As a matter of fact, the more you understand about this word, you don't want it to be softened. It's a word that will bring worship out. If you study this doctrine of election, eklektos is the Greek word. If you study this doctrine of election, and all that happens when you're done is you want to argue about it, you missed it. Go back and study some more. When you see that God chose you, and what does Paul tell us? From before the foundations of the world. You say, I don't know if that's what Paul means. Well, he does mean that, and Peter agrees, because it says chosen. Look at the verse. According to what? According to the foreknowledge of God. You say, oh, I know what that means. That means that God looked down through the hallways of time, see, and he saw who would, who would be calling out and would grab onto that life-saving ring. And in order to save face, he says, yeah, I picked that one to be one of mine. Because he, he will respond, I can tell just by looking down the tube of time. And it makes God a reactor. It makes God a responder, that view does. It makes God not the initiator of your salvation. So what are we going to do with that word foreknowledge? It's the word um, uh, pro, from prognosco, progno, we get our word um, prognosis from this. It, it means to know ahead of time. But I love what the ESV commentary, how, how they, they, they summarize it with this phrase. It's for love. 
It's to know something beforehand to foreordain. You say, well, that sounds like he, he knows who's going to reply to the gospel in a positive way, and he's going to choose them and count them out so that he loses none. But these people are going to respond. Well, no, he, he, whatever you do in verse 2 with Progonosco, you have to do in verse 20 where it refers to Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 20. Now let's go back uh, Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, we know who this is going to be about, right? As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now pay attention, verse 20. For he, Jesus, here it is, same word was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So here, here's, let's test that first theory. So God, foreknowledge just means that God's looking down the, as one author says, the, the tube or the tunnel of time, because he's God and he can do that and we can't. And, and he's looking at who will respond positively. And he says, okay, you'll say yes, so I choose you. You won't say yes, so I won't choose you. You'll say yes, so I, I'm going to choose you. And he's doing all that just looking through his infinite binoculars and responding to what he's seeing. If you want to hold on to that view about salvation, then you have to put Jesus in those binoculars. God, the author, God the Father is the author of salvation. We know that even in the upper room we saw we've studied in John 14 or 13 through 17 that Jesus is constantly talking about Father, I've glorified you. I've given you the work you wanted me to do, which was the work of redemption. So, if you're going to take that first view of salvation and God's just a a responder. Is this what God did? He says, "Okay, I want to save a people a new people, a redeemed people. But I need a redeemer. So I'll just look down the tube or the tunnel of time and see if I can find a redeemer that would say yes. And oh yeah, there's a man coming from Nazareth way down there during the Roman Empire and and he'd say yes to being the Messiah and working my plan. You say, that's heresy. Absolutely. God is the one who put that whole plan into into play. The plan of redemption is not God reacting to anything. As a matter of fact, Paul will say it happened, this whole deal worked out before time began. As a matter of fact, write down Ephesians 1, verse 4. Listen to this verse as I read it to you. Just listen. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father, there we go again, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Listen, just as he chose us in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. This is talking about a predetermined relationship. You want to know something? This is going to keep you in the game in the worst of days of persecution, isn't it? Knowing that because of the Father, 
you are loved. And your love is anchored in the Father's elective purposes before time began, before he could do anything good or bad. Because of the Father, you are loved. But secondly, because of the Spirit, you stand out. Because of the Spirit, you stand out. It says in verse 2, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The sanctifying work of the Spirit, what do you mean by that? Well, the Holy Spirit is the agent that God uses to conform you to the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, listen, even as by the Spirit... But it's not just, the Spirit doesn't just have a ministry of sanctification after you get saved. Understand that this word sanctification uh, has a threefold meaning, and the context determines what the meaning is of those three. See, when you were saved, you used to be part of the unsaved pool, humanly speaking. And at a point determined by the Father in response to the preaching of the gospel... The Spirit worked in your heart and gave you a new birth, Jesus says in John 3. And suddenly, you're no longer defined by that group. You are now set apart from that group, and you're part of the group of the redeemed. That's speaking of your salvation. This is Paul's wording in 1 Corinthians 6.11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. But not only are you positionally sanctified, but now you're being progressively sanctified, meaning you're closing the gospel gap, as Paul Tripp calls it, between your position in Christ as a, as a holy people and your practice of holiness. As you go through this life, you're growing to be more and more like Jesus. This is what Paul refers to in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has, listen, chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. There again you have this becoming positionally sanctified, but now it births a holy life. Because you are sanctified at salvation... Positionally, you're no longer considered the lost, you're considered the redeemed. All the truly redeemed are going to bear good works. We're going to say more about that in just a moment. And we'll be growing in those good works, not to get saved, not to stay saved, but to glorify Christ. You say, when does that end? When we see him in his presence. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we'll be revealed also with him in glory. Colossians 3, verse 4. So you say, well, what's going to be an encouragement? Knowing that the, the, the whole, every person of the Trinity is focused on you on your worst of days. Because of the Father, you are loved. Because of the Spirit, you stand out. You're growing in holiness, consistent with your, your identity and position in Christ. But thirdly, because of the Son... You can obey. Because of the Son, you can obey. It says here, to obey Jesus Christ. That's the result of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. For this purpose, to obey Jesus Christ and be, here's an interesting phrase, 
be sprinkled with his blood. What is this alluding to? Some argue that it, it alludes to the, 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 um, the Old Testament picture and practice of, of leprosy and, and the purifying of that when there's been a healing. But I follow those that go even further back to the giving of the law at Sinai. And just jot down Exodus, 30, or Exodus 24. Exodus 24, I'm going to read to you just a few verses. When Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the, the Lord and of his ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken will do. Moses wrote, wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Listen to this. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken to us, we will do, we will be obedient. Listen to verse 8. So Moses took the rest of the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. There's a a picture here that's just beautiful. And again, Peter's going to talk with tones of, of his Jewish background even as he addresses Gentiles. And he's going to say, Just as those people were initiated into the covenant with Yahweh in the Old Testament, with God in the Old Testament, It was through the sprinkling of blood. So it is true with you, Gentiles. You have been sprinkled by blood. Not of a heifer. Not of a a lamb. But of the Lamb of God. Jesus himself. And because you have entered into this saving, atoning relationship because of the blood of Jesus, understand, you not only can believe him, you must believe him. You not only can obey him, you must obey him. He's going to talk much about this obedience from verse 2 when we get to verse 14 when he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. (laughs) Your identity is settled. What the Father, what the Spirit And what the son starts, he finishes. No matter where you are. No matter what you're suffering. Say, okay, I know it's a temporary journey. And I know I don't walk alone. The very trinity itself, God himself in his fullness, is with me. So, I just got to kind of just grip my teeth and make it through this, right? No, there's one more reality as we finish, and it's this. This this helps finish summing you up. Your resources are bottomless. Your resources are bottomless. Look at the last sentence of verse 2. In essence, he's saying, get ready for this journey of these five chapters. And here's what I have to say. As bad as it's going to be, As bad as this wave of persecution is going to be, and again, it's worse than Peter realizes it, it'll take his own life. He says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Like, do you need to hear anything else? May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. This 
foolish measure, you could look at it as just be multiplied, a cascading on top of you. He says, it's not just barely going to be enough and sufficient for you. It's going to overwhelm you. As Jim Berg says, it's more than enough. And an understatement at that. It's like your pastor, Jim Newcomer. In April, I read that there's the first ever um, knife, Michigan Knife Expo coming to the Novi Convention Center in April. My phone will be on Do Not Disturb for about four hours that weekend because I'm going to be there. I don't know if I'm going to buy anything. I'm pretty picky in what I buy, and I, I go ahead and sell stuff from my collection. It's just a hobby. But imagine if I went to the first ever Michigan Knife Expo at the Novi, the convention center there, and, and, I, and, I, and I buy the ticket, and I go in, and someone stops me and introduces himself. Hello, I'm the president of this convention center, and I'm actually running this knife, this knife expo. And Buck Knives will be right over there. Benchmade's going to be right over there. Spyderco is over there. CRKT's over there. Gerber's back there. And, and enjoy yourself. But I just want to tell you, anything you see that you want, go ahead and just take it. I got you covered. Don't just look at the knives. Take one of each. I'm a little faint-headed right now just saying that. <laughs> That's pretty much what Peter's saying, and it's not about knives. He's saying it's going to be hard. And you're going to need something equal to what darkness is going to descend on you as a pilgrim. And he says, God's got you covered. Any grace you need, it'll be piling on you. Any peace you need, it'll be piled on you. He's saying it's going to get bad. It sure is. As a matter of fact, Peter is going to discuss grace ten times in these five chapters. Because you're going to need it. It's really going to be bad, but it's really going to get good. The Puritans spoke of grace as this. Grace, quote, is young glory. I love it. Peter had been in the upper room before, too, where he heard Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 27, just hours before the cross. He heard Jesus say this to the disciples. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, I give unto you. Don't let your heart be troubled. And later on in chapter 15, he talks about the persecution they're going to endure. All that in the upper room. Peter remembers that. He remembers that. He says, is it going to be enough grace, enough peace? Yeah, well, yeah, Peter's going to use this name for God. The God of all grace. In chapter 5. Verse 6, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, verse 9. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, look at this phrase. I love it. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, sounds like chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Yeah, it's going to get bad. But that's only going to set the stage for it to get really good. Charles Spurgeon said, My master has riches beyond the count of arithmetic, 
beyond the measurement of reason, beyond the dream of imagination, and beyond the eloquence of words. They're unsearchable. And he's right. Don't just pick a little. Take one of each. So I asked a question. My question is this. Who are you? If you answered that with the words, I'm a patient, a student, a wife, a husband, an employee, a success, a failure, an American, a single parent, you've forgotten who you are. Never forget who you are. God himself says, your journey is temporary. Your identity is settled. Your resources are bottomless. And more than Peter realizes when he writes these words, He's got less than two years left. And he finishes well. I think John MacArthur is right when he says, you know, the Christian life can be summed up as a call to victory and glory through the path of suffering. Or as Jim Berg looks at 1 Peter, he used to teach us students, you can summarize it in two words. The whole epistle will teach you how to suffer well. Suffer well. Lord, thank you for bringing us into the front door of this epistle. And just with the opening credits, we have hope. As we go home this week and watch our culture say that if we don't call a man a woman and a woman a man, we'll get accused of slander, and even some folks will even face legal action. When we hear the headlines this week that we look at marriage and say it can be a woman to a woman or a man to a man or a man to a, a dog, and we say no, we find ourselves ostracized. And we can go down the list, Lord. We can go down the list of the dignity of life, the sanctity of life, the duty of work. Even the very fact of you are the creator and we owe allegiance and repentance and faith in you. And all these propositional statements put us outside of our culture right now. And we're under the assumption that this is only going to get worse. It's not something to wait out, according to Romans 1. It's right now that your people at Calvary Baptist and Ypsilanti need to remember who they are need to remember. So thank you for this. But Lord, you've given us much for us to carry with us back to our marriages.